I was thinking about this this week and I had a lot of fun thinking about it. Okay, what are the very worst words that you can hear? Now, I'm not talking about words like moist and ointment. Those are terrible words that just, they're, yeah, they're, they're cringe. I'm talking about what are those words that when you hear, it makes your heart just begin to, to, to your heart rate just begins to skyrocket, right? Like, think about this, parents. Worst words you can hear as a parent, I missed, right? You think about potty training, you think about them being sick, you think about them learning to drive, I missed probably the worst thing a parent can hear, right? I asked my wife, I said, uh, Sam, what is the worst thing you can hear from, from a husband, from me? And she said, uh, the worst words for her to hear are, I'm on my way. Because for some reason, I don't know why, like we have a different interpretation of what that means. She thinks that means I'm on my way means I'm in my car driving home. When I mean I'm on my way means I'm wrapping up, I'm cleaning up, I'm saying bye to people. I'm on my way to getting, I don't know how that works out. Uh, I, I was thinking about husbands, like the worst word a husband can hear, I have a headache. I don't know if that's appropriate on Sunday morning, but you know, uh, these, are, these are great. Like, like maybe you can think about uh, maybe the, one of the worst words you can hear from a boss or a significant other or a friend, when you hear somebody say, hey, we need to talk, right? You hear that and you're like, oh man, something's going on. Or, or when you get the call from the doctor and the doctor says, are you sitting down? You know, like those are not good words to hear. Um, I, I thought about this. I thought maybe you've walked into the building, you've walked into the business and the employee, again, worst words to hear, the employee says, welcome to the DMV. Yeah. I got, I had so much fun thinking about this this week. You guys got to listen to a couple more because I had so much fun thinking about worse words. In fact, Ronald Reagan said this. I'll close with this. Ronald Reagan said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language. Anybody know what he said? I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Okay, rabbit trail done. On a serious note, one of the worst words that you can hear and it's always in past tense, almost, right? Almost. You think when somebody says almost, it means I almost did whatever I was going to do. So in fact, I think about my kids and I'm like, when they come in and I'm like, hey, have you cleaned your room? And they're like, I almost cleaned my room. Almost doesn't matter. You were told to clean your room. Almost doesn't matter. You think about these kids bringing their homework assignments to, to school, and the teacher's like, hey, did you do your math assignment? Well, I almost did my math assignment. Almost doesn't matter. Who cares if you almost did it? You have to do it. I mean, the bank. Imagine if the bank calls you, and you're like, hey, you know, I almost made my mortgage payment. It just doesn't do anything. I think about this. I think... Uh, <laughs> I think about the Mariners, right? The Mariners, we almost made the playoffs. Who cares? Doesn't matter if you almost make the playoff. Almost means I was just short. I was close, but I didn't finish. It wasn't complete. Now we can think about all the ways almost would be negative in our life. But almost is especially dangerous when we consider our faith. In fact, like I think about my early faith experience, I grew up uh, going, you know, that would probably be the best word to describe my faith experience as a childhood was almost, 
almost Christian. See, I, I, grew up, I grew up going to church every week. In fact, our church, we didn't just go for an hour and 15 minutes. We had three hours on Sunday mornings that we went to church. And I went to Sunday school and did the whole thing. In fact, our church, the name of the church said Jesus Christ on the name of the church. Like, how Christian can that be, right? Man, I'm, I'm there. I think, about, I think about this. I think uh, growing up, like, I had good morals. You know, I, I didn't smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Like, I was a moral person. I learned wonderful Christian values. Values about serving other people and putting other needs before yourself and working hard and sacrificing for other people. And I'm like, man, these are good values that make life better, but they're also things that God asks of me. Like, I sounds Christian enough to me. In fact, I think about, like, even as I started working when I was young and I was always give money to the church. And, you know, outside when you go into the grocery store about this time of the year when they get the bell ringers, always, hey, if I got a couple dollars, I'm going to throw a couple dollars in the bell ringer because that's what good Christians do, right? I served in the church. I found ways to serve my community. I'm like, man, what a good Christian I am. In fact, I don't know about you, but every time I went to the doctor's office and you know you got to fill out all the paperwork, I would always mark the box Christian. I'd be pretty proud of myself. I mean, by all looks of it, I looked like a Christian. I talked like a Christian. I was there, right? Except there's a scary verse. Jesus is, is doing the Sermon on the Mount. He's on the mountain. He's, he's preaching to the people. And Jesus said something that is absolutely scary. This is what he said. Matthew 7, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. On that day, many people will say, Lord, Lord, well, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we cast out demons? And didn't we do mighty words in your name? Didn't we put money in the little bell ringer? Didn't we show up to church? Didn't we talk about you, Jesus? And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Almost is a dangerous word when it comes to our faith. Because almost Christian is not enough. We've been studying the book of Acts for the majority of this year. And uh, it's been so good for me, for me personally as I think about our church. I think about what I want for our church. Man, like maybe you've been a part of churches where it's just like it's an institution. You come, you get religious services, and you go home and you live your life. Like that is not our desire at Restoration. We want Restoration Church to be a movement like the early church in the book of Acts, that, that impacts everything around them. Their community, families, neighborhoods. Like we want to be not just an institution, but a movement has an impact on our city. And so we're currently in the middle of the book of Acts. Middle of the book of Acts, kind of context where we are. Where we are. Paul has been on his second missionary journey, and he arrives back at Antioch. His second missionary journey was two and a half or three years. He's strengthening the churches. He's planting churches. He's doing all this stuff. And uh, comes back to Antioch, and he's going to get ready. Uh, he spends about a year, a year, a little over a year, to get ready to go on his third missionary journey. And he's going to go on a third missionary journey. He's going to go to the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. And he's going to really kind of disciple and, and encourage the disciples, encourage the churches. And in our text today that Hudson read for us this morning, You've got two stories, one about a guy by the name of Paulus and another about some disciples in Ephesus. But there's a common thread that ties both of those stories together. Because both those groups, Apollos and the disciples, they were almost Christians. They were almost Christians. 
They heard about the coming Messiah. They heard, they understood we're sinners in need of a savior. They knew they couldn't save themselves. They knew they, they needed the savior. They're living out Christian principles. They're, Apollos is in the church preaching about the Messiah. But they weren't genuine Christians. They were almost Christian. They were lacking a personal relationship with the resurrected Jesus. And that is the difference between an almost Christian and a genuine Christian. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So our text, we're starting in Luke chapter 8. Luke, <laughs> starting in the book of Acts chapter 18, verse 24. And it says, there was a Jew named Apollos who was a native Alexandrian. Now, seeing that he was a native Alexandrian tells you a little bit about Apollos. Alexandria was a, a city that was known for knowledge. It would have been like a college town, like maybe a Cambridge or a Boston. Like you've got these really smart people that live in the city. This would have been Alexandria. They had the, the largest library in the known world at that point. So you could picture Apollos growing up there. Like Apollos probably would have had a pretty solid education. Like he, he would have been well-educated. So he's a native of Alexandrian. And it continues and says, Apollos came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man. And I love this, because not only does he have a great edu education, but he's a great communicator, right? Like maybe, maybe you've ever been to church, and you've got the pastor who is just dull and boring and doesn't have funny jokes, and just, I, I maybe added that myself in. But maybe you've been there, and you're, you, you know, someone who just doesn't have any uh, eloquence. This isn't Apollos. Apollos was a captivating speaker and would draw your attention, and you'd be hanging on the very words he's going to say. So Apollos, like, man, he's a pretty gifted leader. He's got a great education. He, he, he's, he's skilled in communication. And look, it continues, verse 24, he was, he was competent in the Scriptures. Verse 25, he had been instructed of the way of the Lord. So again, we're building a leader. We've got Apollos. He's well-educated. He's a gifted communicator. He's got religious training. And listen, 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 listen to this. He says, being fervent in the spirit. Being fervent in the spirit literally means to burn uh, or to boil over, to bubble over. I would say this means he's passionate. He's not just up there lecturing. He is passionate about the things of God. He's passionate about what he's teaching the people about the coming Messiah. And it culminates, verse 25, he says, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. You know, it's funny, is as I was studying this week, reading commentaries, I'd read and they come to this point, and they're like, this is a theme of this message. Apollos, he is well-educated, he's a gifted communicator, he's got religious training, he's passionate. This is a point. We need leaders like Apollos. I, and I'll be honest, like, I aspire to be like Apollos. I want my education to grow, I want to have religious training, I want to be uh, eloquent and effective in my communication. But if we just think that's what this message is about, we're kind of missing the point, because there's something more here. Because in verse 26, it says, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila, these are a couple that Paul had met in Corinth. Apparently, they've come to Ephesus and trying to support the church there. It says, when Priscilla and Aquila, when they heard Apollos, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more fully. Again, one of the things I always want to emphasize is as we're reading Scripture, 
it's okay for us to ask questions. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, listen, it just said that Apollos taught about Jesus accurately. So why is Priscilla and Aquila, why are they bringing him aside to explain to him more fully the things of God? Like, like what's, what's that miss here? Why do they have to go and read? Like, he already knows. Why do they do, pull him aside? And I skipped over the answer. The, the clue to this is in verse 25. It said, Apollos was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, but listen to this, although he only knew of John's baptism. It would appear that Apollos had been a disciple of John the Baptist. Now, we know John the Baptist. We know the story of John the Baptist. He's a guy who uh, wore camel hair and, and ate locusts and honey. Kind of a weird guy, but he was the forerunner to the Messiah. He's out preaching. Now, the thing with John the Baptist, though, is John the Baptist, he had kind of two acts to his ministry. He had two acts to his preaching. The first act was he was uh, baptizing people in repentance because the Messiah was coming. It was, hey, hey, prepare the way for the Lord. The Messiah is coming. You need to be ready. The Messiah wants us to, to, to understand we need to repent, so I'm going to baptize you in repentance so we're ready for the Messiah. That was his first act. But the second act was once Jesus came onto the scene. Remember the words that he said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, in John 1.33, this is what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He said, I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water, that's God, he told me that the one you see the Spirit descending upon and resting upon is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says, here I am, proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. And then I see Jesus... And I see the Holy, and I baptize Jesus, and I see the Holy Spirit come and descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. And all of a sudden, he's like, this is the Messiah. This is the one I've been talking about. We no longer have to prepare for him. He's here. He's Jesus. And here's what I get. Apollos, Apollos is there for the first act. He heard John talking about preparing the way for the Messiah. And again, Apollos, he's educated in the scripture, so he's read the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament talks about the Messiah who's going to come and make all things right. And so Apollos would have heard John preaching that first act, and it's like, dude, I can't wait to get back to Ephesus. I can't wait to go back to Alexandria. I'm going to tell everybody, Messiah's coming. And this is what Apollos is doing. He's telling people, the Messiah's coming. Let's get ready. Let's be prepared. Let's repent. Let's get ready for it but he didn't hear the second act. He didn't hear that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't know about the cross. He didn't know about the resurrection, about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Apollos was almost Christian. He looked like a Christian. He smelled like a Christian. He talked like a Christian. But he did not yet have a personal relationship with Jesus. And as Apollos is there preaching in the synagogue, Aquila and Priscilla, they hear him. They're like, man, this guy's pretty solid. Except he's, he's kind of missing the rest of the story. And so you see this beautiful picture of discipleship. For Priscilla and Aquila, and uh, I know what they're going to do. They, they hear Apollos preaching and they're like, dad, he doesn't have the whole story. So we're going to go on social media and, and, and expose him for being a false teacher. 
No, that's not that. They're going to stand up publicly and be like, Apollos, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. No, that's not what they do. The text said that Aquila and Apollos, they, they pull him aside and they explain to him the way of God more fully. They explain to him how Jesus died on the cross, how he was buried and he rose from the grave. They explain how Jesus ascended up into heaven and then sent the Holy Spirit upon them at Pentecost for God to live with them forever. And they explain to him, hey, Apollos, Jesus is the Messiah you're talking about. Jesus is the one who's come to fix all things, to make all things right. You need to trust Jesus as a Savior and have a relationship with him. Remember, Apollos, like, Apollos, man, he's, he's not just this, he's not a nobody. I mean, he's a respected leader. He's up preaching about the Messiah. Yet, Apollo still has the humility to listen to Priscilla and Aquila, to learn, to grow, and say, man, I need to correct my faith and believe in this Messiah. Apollo, at some point, became a believer. In verse 27, it says he desired to go to Achaia, which is in Corinth, to help the church there. And listen to this, verse 28, Acts 18, 28. It says, Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public and showed them by scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, was Jesus. Again, here's the guy. Prepare the way. The Messiah's coming. A Priscilla and Aquila help him connect the dots. And all of a sudden, he's like, hey, that's it. And he becomes an apologist. He becomes an evangelist. Let me show you from the scriptures how Jesus is actually the one that we're waiting for who came to, to fix what's gone right, to, to pay for our sin, to allow us to have this right relationship with God. I love this story. Because it helps us understand that being almost a Christian is not quite enough. It's not enough for us just to know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. It's not for us just to, 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 to know some things about Jesus. No, we actually have to surrender and trust into a personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, that message is so significant that immediately after Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, immediately after he tells a story about Apollos, chapter 19, he tells us another story about Paul. Paul has gone to Ephesus. And he meets some disciples there. He meets some Christians there. It says in verse 7 that there were 12 of them. And so, Acts chapter 19, verse 2, Paul asked them, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul said to them, well, into what then were you baptized? And listen to this. They said we were baptized into John's baptism. See that phrase of John's baptism? That is the same that we just read in chapter 18 with Apollos. That John's baptism is a thing that links these two stories in chapter 18 and 19. These disciples in Ephesus, they'd heard about the need to be baptized for repentance. They heard about the coming Messiah. But they did not yet know about Jesus. They did not know that the Messiah had come. They didn't know that he died and rose from the grave. And it's clear from this passage, they did not know that the Holy Spirit had ascended upon the believers in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Now, 
part of the question, again, we're asking questions. One of the things I see is, why does Paul say, have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, Romans chapter 8 has been called the greatest chapter in the Bible. In Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote that. And in, in verse 9, Paul said, you Christians are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God listens, uh, lives in you. And listen, listen to this. He says, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, if anyone doesn't have the Holy Spirit, you do not belong to him. Paul understands, listen, if you have the Holy Spirit, that's evidence of your faith. And so Paul shows up and he's like, hey, do you guys have the Holy Spirit? I mean, you look Christian. You sound Christian. You look like disciples. He calls them disciples because they look like disciples. They're religious. They look and smell and talk like Christians. So Paul says, do you have the Holy Spirit? And they're like, no, we don't. They're almost Christian. Almost Christian. And almost still isn't enough. So explain to them about the Messiah. In verse 5, it says, Hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. These disciples, you see what just happened? They're baptized for a second time. They're baptized the first time. They're baptized for, with John the Baptist. This was a baptism of, uh, of repentance. This signified, hey, we are dedicating our life to following the Messiah. We're dedicating our life to, to seeking after Jesus, to seeking after God. But when Paul proclaims the gospel to them, and how baptism is a response to a decision we make to have a relationship with Jesus. As they understand that, they understand baptism is a response to a personal act of faith, a choice to follow the Messiah. These disciples are actually rebaptized as Christians. In verse 6, Paul lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is uh, what's considered a, a mini Pentecost. There are actually four Pentecost events in the book of Acts. The first one, Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit descends upon uh, the Jewish believers uh, in Jerusalem. We call that the big Pentecost, the main one. But there's these other little mini Pentecosts that happen in Acts chapter 8 when uh, Philip is preaching to the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit descends upon the Samaritans uh, in Acts chapter 8. That's the second Pentecost event. Acts chapter 10, when Paul takes the gospel to the Gentiles, becomes a second Pentecost event, or third one, where the Holy Spirit descends. And here in Acts chapter 19, this is the, the third Pentecost. The, the, I can't even count straight. This is the fourth Pentecost event where the Holy Spirit is now descending upon these Jewish believers that are scattered across the world. The thing I want to emphasize is Pentecost is not something that we replicate. The Holy Spirit doesn't descend upon us in the same way as he does in these events. No, actually, Scripture says that when we place our faith in him, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a moment. It doesn't happen by laying on the hands and, and prophesying. We are filled with the Spirit at the moment of our faith. And these disciples in Ephesus, Paul baptizes them lays hands on them in the response as they are filled with joy, proclaiming the good news of God, proclaiming the gospel for all to hear. Here's what I think about this passage. I think it is absolutely possible for us to know about God, 
it's possible for us to love God and desire God in our life. It's possible for us to know we are sinners in need of a Savior. It's possible for us to live godly lives, to have morals, to have godly values, Christian values. It's possible for us to, to serve in the church, to speak on pulpits about Jesus. It's possible for us to look like a Christian, to talk like a Christian, to live like a Christian, but not actually have a personal relationship with Jesus. Hear me, hear me. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs that we ascribe to. Christianity is a relationship with the resurrected Savior that allows us to come to, to know God personally, to have a living relationship with him. In fact, here's, here's my summary for this passage today. Knowledge of Jesus' gospel isn't enough. We must, by faith, actually have a relationship with a resurrected Savior. Almost Christian isn't enough. Knowing about it and trying to live the life is not enough. We actually have to have a relationship with Jesus, the Savior. And the thing about application, I, I think there's two ways for us to apply this. I think there's a way that we can look at it corporately as a church and a way that we can look at it personally. We'll start corporately. I mean, the church... At its core, the church is a community of people. It's a group of people gathered together to follow after Jesus. And here at Restoration Church, we have these sayings that we like to say. We call these our family values. One of the family values that we say as a church is that we belong together. We're a group of people that we belong together. What else do we say? I have to look at it because I forgot it. The other thing we say is we're a people that celebrate progress, not perfection. And if that's true, and I think there's two questions we have to ask ourselves as a church. Number one, how do we treat those that do not have it all together? I mean, if the church is a community, a church is a place that we're supposed to belong together, how do we treat people who do not have it all together? Again, I look at Priscilla and Aquila. They don't, they don't call out Apollos as being an idiot. They don't run to social media to start a social media campaign about why Apollos doesn't have it all right. They don't criticize him publicly. They don't do any of that. I mean, I think about, I think about the culture. We, we live in this cancel culture where it's kind of like, no, you have to agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to expose you. And I'm going to only surround myself with people who think and act just like me. But that's not what Priscilla and Aquila did. They cared enough about this young man, Apollos. They cared enough not to reject him, not to humiliate him. But what does the text say they did? It says they brought him aside. They explained to him more fully the, 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 the things of God. You know what that's called? You know that's called discipleship, right? That is discipleship where we see someone in the church and we see them, man, they don't have things figured out. Maybe they're struggling through something. Maybe they're, they're, they've got a little bit of mess in their life. And discipleship is not when we say, hey, you're an idiot, not when we humiliate them, but when we say, hey, hey, I'm gonna pull you aside. Let me help you fully understand the things of God. I love you enough to say, let's figure this out together. In fact, do you remember what Jesus called us to do? 
Matthew 28, the Great Commission. What did Jesus call us to do? He called us to reject people that don't believe the way that we believe. No, that's not what he did. He called us to expose people on social media. No, 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 no. Jesus said, go around the world and make disciples of all nations. He called us to make disciples of all nations. And discipleship is not a hard thing for us to do. We make it much harder than it needs to be. Discipleship in its simplest terms is doing exactly what Priscilla and Aquila did. It's finding somebody and say, hey, let's hang out. Let's go get lunch. Let's get coffee. Come over to the house. Let's read some scripture together. Let's talk about Jesus. Let me show you how I've learned how to live this thing out. That's what discipleship at its core is. And this is what Priscilla and Aquila do. They see Apollos, man, he doesn't have it all figured out. But rather than saying, oh, I can't deal with that, they say, no, Apollos, let's pull you to the side. You know, one of my deepest desires for Restoration Church is that God would give us a bunch of Priscilla and Aquilas. They're willing to find people that don't have it all together and say, hey, out of love, let me be your friend. Let me help you wrestle through this faith thing and figure out how to live it out. I mean, I think about how many of us have been Christians for a long time. How many of us have have had someone do that for us? Hey, let me walk with you. Let me talk with you. Let me show you how to live this thing out. Do you know how great the church would be if we were more like Priscilla and Aquila? Hey, come figure this out with me. Come walk with me. Let me walk with you. Let's read scripture together. Let's talk about Jesus together. Let's figure out how to live this faith thing out together. Man, it is such a beautiful thing. Second thing for us as a church, are we humble enough to continue to learn? Again, I love this because here you've got Apollos. Apollos, man, he's gifted. We already said that. He, he's, he's gifted. He's, he's well-educated. He's an eloquent speaker, much better than me. I can't get three words out in a row. He's better than that. He is got religious training. He's passionate about the things of God. Man, if anybody should be up telling Priscilla and Aquila how to live, isn't it Apollos? What about the 12 disciples? 12 disciples in Ephesus, man, they're called disciples because they look like disciples. Yet both of them show a tremendous amount of humility. Hey, we don't have it all figured out. And so when we're challenged with truth, with scripture, we recognize, man, we need to learn. We need to adapt. We need to change. In fact, there's this saying that has been attributed to, uh, I've seen it attributed to Aristotle. I've seen it attributed to Albert Einstein. I don't know who said it first. But the saying is, the more we know, the more we recognize that we have so much more we need to learn. Isn't that true? And what's funny is because we get into these, these church settings and we kind of feel like, man, I ought to have this church thing figured out, right? I ought to have this faith thing figured out by now. Like, I grew up in church, right? Do you know who my parents are? My parents, man, they're, they're, they're pillars of the church. By this point, I ought to have this faith thing figured out. 
And, you know, I'm educated. You know, I've got some life experience. I've been through some stuff. At this point, like, people would expect me to be further along in my faith. So what do we do? We start faking it. We start looking the part. And say, look, I'm looking like a Christian. I'm talking like a Christian. I'm walking like a Christian. And we begin to fake it. This is what happens in churches. We show up at church. We put a, pull a smile on my face, man. I'm blessed. This is why we say here at Restoration Church, we're looking for progress, not perfection. Because if we're looking for perfection, then we're going to come up and be like, man, I have to have it all figured out. So when I hear something new, I can't change. I can't, no, no, I've already got it figured out. I already know the answers. But if we recognize, hey, this is a place that God is looking not for our perfection, but our progress. Which means there's going to be times we have to continue to learn, to grow, to adapt. To say, hey, this is where I was thinking. This is what I saw. But God, I'm hearing your word. I'm willing to adapt to that to grow, to learn, to to adjust. This is why, again, I'll say at Restoration Church, we're not looking for perfection. We're not looking for perfect people. We're looking for people with a little bit of junk in the trunk. I think that's the wrong term. I think we're looking for people. (laughs) We're looking for people that recognize, like, I'm not yet perfect. I've got room for growth and progress. This message went off the rails, man. Are you humble enough to to recognize, like, I don't have it all figured out? And this is where there are some men in this room that I look up to, men in this room that are are pillars to me. And it's humbling when they're like, man, thank you so much for sharing that today. I haven't heard that before. And I'm like, what do you mean? You're the guy that, that mentors me. And that's what maturity looks like. That's what mature Christians realize. The more I learn, the more I realize how much more I have to learn. In fact, is it possible? Is it possible for some of us that we are missing out on what God has for us? We're missing out what God can do in us and through us because we're not humble enough to continue to learn and to grow. That's what it means for us as a church. How do we treat people that don't have it all figured out? And are we humble enough to continue to learn? And here's some personal application for you. Number one, here's what it comes down to. Are you believing in a set of beliefs, or do you actually have a personal relationship with Jesus? That's what it comes down to. Apollos is not a bad man. Apollos believed he was a sinner in need of a savior. He lived, looked, smelled, walked, everything like a Christian. But he did not actually have a relationship with a resurrected Savior. Close isn't enough. Are we humble enough to even consider that? I mean, I just think about the power of those words that Jesus said in Matthew 7. Like, are we actually willing to to listen to those words and consider, is that me? Jesus said, well, didn't we do all those things in your name? Jesus, we, we went to church, and we, we went to Sunday school, and we went to the potluck. I hate that word. We went to the family meal, 
and we're in life group, and we're teaching Sunday school, and we help out in the church, and we give money, are we willing to consider what Jesus just said? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Because it's not enough for us just to look like a Christian and smell like a Christian and act like a Christian. Sometimes what happens in our culture is we take our faith for granted. We have cultural Christians, generational Christians, generational Christians. Well, of course I'm a Christian. Like, like huh, my parents, they practically made us in the church. Like we were born under the pew. Like, we were at church from the day we, were, we grew up in church. My parents, like, they've taught us. And we read the Bible together. My parents, you know who my parents are? Of course I'm a Christian. Our country, man, we're, man, it's, what are the three Fs? Faith, family, and football? Faith, yeah, family, faith, and football. Like, of course, I'm a Christian. Listen, Christianity is not just ascribing to a set of beliefs. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, you know what he said? It's not enough just for us to believe in Jesus. James says, the demons believe in Jesus. The demons, and they're not Christians, yet they shudder. It's not about knowing truth. It's about are we willing to surrender into that relationship with Jesus? I know for some of us that is extremely hard. It's much easier for me just to say, hey, I believe it. The question is, are you willing to surrender to it? Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the grave, you will be saved. John 1, to those who received him, not to those who had the right family not to those who grew up in church, not to those that had a spiritual heritage, to those who personally received him and believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Second personal application. Is the Holy Spirit present in your life? An old preacher was probably the first celebrity preacher, a guy by the name of George Whitfield. He gave an analogy like this, and he said, if you take a dirty piece of glass, you wash it off, you make it look good, you clean it up, that's what religion does. That's us when we try and just walk and talk and be almost Christian. But at its core, Christianity is where God takes a small piece of ore He melts it down, he purifies it, he polishes it, he turns it into something beautiful, a bright, shiny piece of gold. You understand that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives? He doesn't just clean us up. He goes down to the core of who we are and redeems us and changes us. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, how you, you know how you know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. 
That is the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is alive in you, these characteristics should be increasingly more present in your life. Is that the fruit seen in your life? And if it's not, maybe we need to go down and check our rooms. I'm going to just say this. Almost Christian is not enough. Satan is a deceiver who tells us you look, you, you look, you look, and you walk, and you talk, you sound like a Christian, you're good enough. And I'll be honest, I was there. That was my childhood. I look, I walk, I talk, I sound Christian enough. Yeah, I don't want us to be deceived. I'm praying that you'd wrestle through this in your own heart to ensure you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Not just that you've ascribed to a set of beliefs, but you've surrendered your life to the resurrected Jesus.